Good morning. Uh, I'm going to be reading from God's Word, but before I do that, I'm just going to pray for us. So let's pray. Father, as we turn to listen to you in your Word, please would your Holy Spirit be shining a light into the dark places of our hearts and our minds. Please would you teach us, guide us, change us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our first reading this morning is from the New Testament, from the book of Matthew, and we're going to be reading from chapter 6, verses 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And the second reading is Psalm 104. And we're reading the whole psalm. Praise the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendour and majesty. He wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariots and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stand above the mountains, but at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. He makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field, the wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the air nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. Wine that gladdens the heart of man oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nests, the stork has its home in the pine trees. The high mountains belong to the wild goats, the crags are a refuge for the conies. The moon marks off the seasons, and the sun knows when to go down. You bring darkness, it becomes night, 
and all the beasts of the forest prowl. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises and they steal away. They return and lie down in their dens. Then man goes out to his work, to his labour until evening. How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There's the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things, both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and the leviathan which you formed to frolic there. These all look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they're terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the earth. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. But may sinners vanish from the earth, and the wicked be no more. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Oh, wow, people responded. That's weird. Uh, so we say this a lot at Cornerstone. We say uh, when, when, we, uh, when we're giving a sermon, it's the start of a conversation, not the end. And that if you have questions or doubts or if this is weird or doesn't make sense, please, let's keep chatting about this afterwards. Because, And I say that in particular this week because we're going to be tackling some pretty big stuff. Okay, and so if it doesn't, if you're not sure of what you think about it, that's great. I'd love to chat with you afterwards, or come chat with other words, with, with with other folks. I've lived in St. Andrews for almost ten years now, and when I first came to St. Andrews, I immediately started hearing about a phenomena that was going on amongst the undergrads at that time. Ten years ago, there was a, a trend sweeping St. Andrews University. This is true. I don't know if anyone remembers. Do you remember this? Do you know what this is? Yes, this is, this is like the TikTok of one decade ago, okay? All of the kids were, sorry, that's offensive. All of the young adults were, were getting together if they were Christian or if they were religious or if, even if they were just kind of seeking and trying to figure out whether God was real or not. And they were praying really, really hard and then they were taking one pence coins, sticking them to the wall, and praying that God would make them stick. And then removing their hands and seeing what happens. And seriously, everybody was doing this. Why? What did you just say, Colin? Asking why. Oh, I thought I saw Colin say, because they're weird. But no, you didn't say that. Okay. Um, 
it might seem strange. Some of us might be like, yeah, that makes total sense. Some of us might seem think that seems strange. But the reason why they were doing it, actually, I think most of us can resonate. Why were they doing it? These young, young people were desperately wondering, if God exists, why doesn't he show himself? If God is real, why won't he make his existence more obvious? And if you hear that story and you think it's a bit ridiculous, you actually probably share the exact same view of God and the world that those students have. Because why did those students think that all throughout my life, God's never shown himself to me, he's never revealed himself, he's never made himself obvious, but if a penny stuck to the wall, then I would know he exists. What's the underlying view of the world and God that they had adopted? What's well, the same view that makes many of us skeptical of that exercise? Because when I heard that, my immediate reaction was, well, that's not big enough. Do you know what I mean? If God's going to really prove to me he exists, he better not just stick a penny on the wall. He better write in the clouds, hello, Jared, I've been watching, something like that. Make it obvious. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever question whether you're religious or irreligious, whatever your belief system is, why hasn't God shown himself to me? Why isn't his existence more obvious? So this is the slightly, this is the big idea I want to I wanna tackle right now. And so if, if you're not fully tracking with this, that's okay. Let's chat about it later. The reason we think that for God to reveal himself, he needs to do something like that, something weird, something unnatural, something out of the ordinary, something that goes against every other experience in the world, is because we have already adopted a secular, implicitly atheist perspective on the world. Here's what I mean. This is a very famous quote from Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell was one of the most well-known philosophers of the 20th century. And in this quote, he's just summarizing the modern kind of view on the world that actually, I want to say, most religious and irreligious people share. He said, man is the product of causes which had no idea of the end they were achieving. His origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collections of atoms. No fire, no heroism, all the devotion, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And the whole temple of man's achievement will be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's home henceforth be safely built. Now he sounds like a very cheery chap, doesn't he? But the point he's making is actually the point that I think was a view of the world, of the way the world is, that was shared by every single student that stuck a penny against a wall. The world is a place of just random, blind causes. Everything in this world is just about the collection, the, the, the coming together and battering against one another of atoms. In other words, the world as it normally operates is without purpose, without meaning, without value, and requires no reference to God at all. The world, as it normally is, is secular. 
And therefore, if we're going to conclude that God exists, if we're going to have an experience of God in this sort of world, there's only two ways it can happen. See, what this whole view, both Bertrand Russell's view and the view of those students is, is that the world is kind of like a machine. And someone like other philosophers that were just prior to, to Russell, like David Hume, said this explicitly. The whole world is like a great machine. It's dead. It's lifeless. It's just powers and atoms and things bumping into one another. And therefore, if this world is going to show us God somehow, it will be through one of two things. Either it will be because someone got the whole thing started. And so this is how Christians oftentimes try to respond to this world. They say, fine, we can agree the world is just a big machine that runs on its own. We don't need God to explain our daily lives or the way the world is. So maybe, though, someone had to get it started. Maybe there had to be a great watchmaker who wound the whole thing up in the first place. And that might make you feel very good for a little while. You may think you've proved God. But at what cost? The cost of saying the only place where you really need God, the only place where you can truly experience God, was at the beginning when he set things up and then he stepped back. And the world just runs from there on out on its own resources. Or you could experience God in this sort of world through an eruption, through an intervention, through God in very rare, strange instances, breaking through and doing something weird. And that's what many other people are looking for. They're not looking for some rationalist arguments, but they're saying most of the time my world is utterly absent of God, so maybe God could show himself to me if he did something unnatural. If he messed up the watch for just a second, if he broke the system for one moment, then I would be convinced that he's broken in from above and that he really exists. What this text is trying to do, what this psalm is trying to do, is to change the lens through which you look at the world. It's to change the entire perspective, to challenge that way of looking at life as if it is absent of the divine in its normal operations in day-to-day -day life. Jesus says something really profound here. He uses this metaphor of the eye as a way of thinking about your perspective. He's saying your perspective, the lens through which you interpret your life and the world and reality, will determine what you see. We know that to be true, right? When you're in a really bad place, when you're going through really dark times, don't you find that all of the things which usually would have brought you joy or happiness or delight suddenly seem empty and like mere tedium and like they don't matter? But you realize you're doing the exact same things you were doing before. What's changed isn't the world. What's changed is your perspective. And so the exact same things you can experience totally differently. That's what a lens does. I don't know anything about photography or, or videography or anything like that. But if any of you have seen a great photographer at a wedding, they always show up with a huge bag full of what? Lenses. And if you don't know anything about it, like me, if you look through two lenses, do they look that different? No, if you look at the same mountain through two different lenses and you're just a naive person like me, you're like, what's the difference? It looks, it's the same mountain. But a great photographer can tell you, no, the way you frame that mountain subtly changes the experience 
of looking at the mountain. It frames it, it shapes it, and it defines how you encounter it. What this psalmist is doing is saying that many of us have a frame, a lens, a perspective on the world which unintentionally screens out God, which makes us feel, like Russell described, as if the world is flat and empty, and as if, if God exists, he's very, very far away. The psalm was written intentionally to counter a false perspective on the world. Now, obviously, it wasn't written to counter that false modern lens that I just described. It was made to counter a different lens, an ancient lens. Who knows what this picture is? Yeah. It's one of, my, one of my favorite movies of all time, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And the best thing about Monty Python and the Holy Grail is not the obvious jokes that are going on when they're talking. It's what's going on in the background. Like, if anybody's a big fan of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, one of the strangest things is everywhere they go, they're just, someone is just using a cat to clean something. They're, they're hitting cats against things to clean them. That's the true comedy in this movie. But another one is there's this hilarious conversation which, which happens with these peasants and, and, and King Arthur, but the funniest bit of it is what are the peasants actually harvesting? They don't have grain. They don't have cattle or something. They're just harvesting mud. The whole conversation, the peasants are just flopping mud one on top of the other. And it's making a kind of not-so-subtle point. We may not know a lot about what it was like to live in the Middle Ages, or even what it was like to live in ancient times, which is when this psalm was written. But one thing we know pretty much for sure. It was very, very difficult. It was extremely difficult. So let's try to, for one second, enter into the lens through which an ancient person would have interpreted the world. And I promise you it will be surprisingly relevant to our own. Imagine you were living in the ancient Near East. You were living in what we now call the Middle East, thousands of years ago. And your livelihood is utterly dependent upon the seasons. If you have a good crop, your life will be fantastic. If you have a bad crop, your life will be on the edge of dissolution. And you have no idea how these seasons work. Your family can live in the same place for generation after generation, year after year, and suddenly a huge army that from a nation you've never even heard of can come through and in one day change your life forever, make you go from being a lord to a serf. There's an incredibly high infant mortality rate. There's an incredibly short, average lifespan. And again, who lives and who dies, you don't understand. You don't understand what makes it that suddenly someone who one day was completely healthy is on their deathbed the next. So how would you interpret this sort of world? What's the lens you would use? You would probably think the world is an incredibly hostile place. The world doesn't care about me. And in fact, at times, it seems like the world is set against me. And this is exactly how ancient people interpreted the world. When you look at the creation stories, the creation myths of the people around Israel, when you look at what's called the Canaanite myths or the Babylonian myths, they're both the same sort of stories. And they usually involve actually the same character, a character sometimes called Leton. And in the Bible, a character called Leviathan. You might have heard him mentioned in this psalm. 
So these people thought, if this world is so difficult, so hard, so chaotic, so hard to predict, perhaps the world came about because of some great cosmic battle. Perhaps there's a good force and a bad force in the universe, and they're equally matched. And perhaps this bad force, which they depicted as a sort of sea monster, Perhaps the only way our world was created is by some god who, for a moment at least, beat back the forces of chaos and death and evil. And they depicted all of these forces, the forces of chaos and the forces of death, as gods. Gods that are barely being defeated by goodness. Now, as I said, I don't think this is foreign to many of us. This idea that life can feel fragile, that the world can feel hostile to our own existence, isn't only something for ancient people, even if we don't depict it through gods and myths and stories. One of the very difficult things uh, about, about ministry is entering with people into pain, irreparable loss, grief, and suffering and trauma of all kinds. And one of the things that I often find in speaking to people like that, speaking to people in our own community, is that there is a daily struggle to say, I feel like I'm doing all the right things. I feel like I'm trying to look on the bright side of life. I feel like I'm trying to still go for walks and to still meet with people. I'm trying to still do good things and to live a life that feels like it means something and has value. And yet it feels like the world is against me. No matter what I do, I can't get out of this hole. That's the perspective on the world that this psalm was created to confront. And interestingly, what it doesn't say is that's all rubbish. It doesn't say the darkness isn't that dark. It doesn't say the pain isn't that bad. It doesn't say suffering and evil aren't real. In fact, surprisingly, Leviathan is included in the psalm. The monsters exist, so to speak. But what it does is it places the monsters in a new context, in a new lens, in a new frame. Genesis does the same thing. It's hard to see, but Genesis actually mentions these same monsters, and it does it in a really interesting way. If you've ever read the first chapter of Genesis, you might know it says, God made, um, he made the sky, and he made the, the animals to go in the sky, and he made the land, and he made the animals to go on the land, and he made the, the sea, and the animals to go on the sea, and yet for some reason, he mentions one particular animal, or class of animals, only one. He says, he just made the things for the sky and the things for the land and the things for the ocean and the great creatures. It's basically a word for the sea monsters to go in the sea. Why does he mention that explicitly and not mention anything else? Well, what Hebrew Bible scholars will tell us is that the, the author of Genesis, just like the author of this psalm, is making an argument. He's saying, you think these monsters, this chaos, this death is so powerful that it's on the verge of overtaking God at any moment. And I'm telling you, it's just a creature. It's real, it's frightening, it's powerful, but it is absolutely nothing compared to the goodness of the creator, God. 
And the whole psalm goes on to narrate a different way of viewing your life. Not to say that darkness isn't real and that it isn't frightening, but that it doesn't tell the whole story. The psalm goes through every bit of creation. And what it basically says is God doesn't work by disrupting or breaking into the natural order. He doesn't work by starting things off in the beginning and then letting it run of his own steam. God is at work in every bit of nature, in every bit of our world. For example, he begins saying, he makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. So the question is, who quenches the thirst of the donkeys? First, it says it's God. Verse 10, he makes springs pour water into the ravines. 11 says they, in other words, the springs, give water to all the beasts of the fields. So if we came to the psalmist and says, wait a minute, so who waters the fields? Is it the springs and the, and the water system and the rainfall and all the things we study with science? Or is it God? What would he say? Yes. God is at work through the whole process. He goes on to make it even more clear. The difference isn't that one view is scientific and thinks you can explain things through natural processes, and the other view is divine. Oh, God just does it. It's not, where does thunder come from? And, the, and you know, the religious view is, oh, God was bowling in the sky. No. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate. And this is the key point. The difference between these two lenses is that one lens says because we can describe things through a description of their natural processes, as Bertrand Russell says, there's no purpose, no value, no meaning. And the psalmist says what those natural processes reveal is God's care. They reveal that things have a meaning a purpose, a rationality. And as this verse 15 goes on to say, that it's ultimately for our good and for the creature's good. That God doesn't just make rain fall because of some random collection of atoms, but because God loves plants. That God doesn't just make wine, just so happen to ferment when you put it away for a long time into something absolutely magical and beautiful because of the natural process. It's because he wants to gladden human hearts. The natural world isn't empty of purpose and value and meaning. It's drenched in it from the beginning. Has anybody ever seen this slightly ridiculous quote when you go to a pub? It's in so many pubs, right? It's, it's, it's not a real quote. But the, the quote is, beer is proof God loves us. Okay? Now, it's not that far off from the psalm. <laughs> And the real quote is even closer. It actually makes this point brilliantly. This is what Benjamin Franklin actually said. And this is, lots of theologians have said something similar. We speak of the conversion of water into wine at the wedding of Cana as a miracle. So you know the first miracle Jesus did in the Gospels is he comes and he takes a bunch of water and he miraculously turns it into wine. But Franklin says, but this conversion is done daily by the goodness of God before our eyes. This is the water that falls from the heavens on our vineyards. There it enters the roots of the vine to be changed into wine. Constant proof that God loves us and that he loves to see us happy. The particular miracle was done only to hasten the operation. The psalmist's view is that God was just involved in every glass of wine you drink. 
as he was when Jesus turned water into wine. He did it differently, but he was just as involved. And they were both showing that there's a meaning, there's a purpose to creation. So if we came to the psalmist and we brought our question, we said, how come God's never shown himself? How come I've never experienced him? What would he say? You might say go to Luvians and... <laughs> Just kidding. What would he say? He'd say, have you never had an experience, not a supernatural experience, a wholly, completely natural experience where you sat down at a table, you had a wonderful meal, and you came to the end of it and you said, this was a gift. Have you never gone on a wonderful walk through the hills and looked across misty mountains and said, life didn't have to be this way. It's not about some unique experience that can't be explained by any other terms. What Jesus is saying, you need to, uh, the eyes to see that every experience you've ever had was a gift. The psalmist would say, you've never had an experience that wasn't an experience of God. Because every moment of your life, if you view it rightly, is a gift from heaven for you. Every meal you've eaten, every drink you've drunk, every friendship you've had, all of it points to the Creator. And it wants to make particularly clear that this isn't as if God is some watchmaker who started things and then lets them run on their own. That it's God's spirit, daily breathing life, into the things he has made. It's not as if God is at a distance. It's that as Paul says in, uh, later on, in him we live and move and have our being. And if this is all true, it means there's a point, there's a meaning, there's a rationale to the world and to our lives. The psalm comes to a conclusion saying, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. That might be what we would expect. That's what we would usually say. Yes, of course, the world is about God's glory, but he adds something else very surprising. May the Lord rejoice in his works. The psalmist says basically, all throughout creation, the meaning, the rationale, the significance is joy. God made the world for his own joy. And therefore, what our purpose, our meaning is, as he says in verse 33, I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praises to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. Now, I don't think that just literally means you should sing every single day, all the time. That would be very difficult. We would run out of that breath very quickly if we were trying to sing nonstop all the time. What is he saying? It's kind of a metaphor. He's saying if God made the world out of his joy, then what it means to live rightly in this world is to respond as well with a life of singing, with a life of thanksgiving, with a life of joy, which says that humans aren't something that I use, they're creatures God made to delight in, that this world isn't something that we can just take from as much as we desire, but is something meant to be cultivated and celebrated and enjoy. Somebody gave us a book uh, for my daughter. And I think it kind of makes this point really well. The, the book goes through all of creation and it, and it begins asking the question, who sang the first song? 
Uh, who hummed the first tune? Was it the wind blowing past the silvery moon? And it goes on, it goes to all of creation, and it says every bit of creation is singing something, that the stars are singing, the whales are singing, the trees are singing, the birds in the sky are singing, but none of them sang the first song. And it closes like this. All these guesses we've made are quite good, but they're wrong. It was God, our maker, who sang the first song. When God made the earth, he decided to sing, and he wrote his song into everything. God's song says you're good, you're wonderfully made, and he'll never stop loving you all of your days. So I want you to sing with your life and your voice, for I created the earth to make a joyful noise. The lens isn't just a theoretical question about whether you believe in God in some abstract sense. This psalm is about saying that you will be tempted to think that you don't matter. That if this world is blind and indifferent to your existence, then you have no place in it and you have nothing to offer. But if God made this world out of joy and to give us good things, then each of us has something to say. Each of us has something to contribute, some way to make the world be the gift that it was meant to be from the beginning. So, why then does the psalm end like this? And this is my final point. We're not going to skip the last verse. Why, after all of this wonderful vision for life in a world that is a gift, that has meaning and purpose, and that is made for joy, why close saying, but may sinners vanish from the earth, and the wicked be no more? The psalmist is doing something very interesting. Again, what a lot of Hebrew Bible scholars will say is what that ancient lens on the world wanted to say is the worst, the most terrifying, the most frightening things in the world are out there. There are some monsters trying to get you. And the psalmist is saying, no. What is it that breaks the beautiful symphony of all God has made? We do. The monsters are ultimately within. This is not a controversial verse. Have you ever heard environmental activists talk about business executives that pollute streams and chop down ancient groves? It's at least this harsh. What he's saying, what God is saying is not, oh, I'm so mad at these people. It's that I made everything in this world to be a harmonious gift. And if people insist on destroying that, there's no way to preserve the harmony unless they are pushed outside, unless they are no more. So what does that mean for us? If you're like me, you, you maybe saw this vision of a life that is about cultivating joy and it was something that you long for and you desire. But if you're honest, you know that every one of us Every one of us. It's part of the reason that that symphony, that harmony is broken. Because of the way we treat the earth, because of the way we treat one another. So what are we to do? Fortunately, that's not the most important question. Because this, is, this psalm is about the very beginning of God's story. 
And this final verse is foreshadowing. It's looking ahead to the whole rest of the story of the Bible. And what happens is it's not a question of asking, what will you do about this or what will I do about this? God the creator looks down at the wonderful symphony that he had made and he sees creatures like you and I destroying it. And he says, what will I do? And the solution is to come and to live among us, to live a life of thanksgiving and of goodness and of grace at every step and not to push us out of the world and to make us no more. But as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, to go onto the cross and to allow us to push him out of the world, to make him no more. So that every one of us, even those of us who have marred creation's song, can be invited back in. We're going to come to the table in just a moment to celebrate this gift, but before we do so, I think it is appropriate that we actually sing together. So Xander's going to come and lead us in a song, and I'll invite you to stand, uh, and let's respond and worship. <laughs>